GM friends, and welcome to the future of gaming. You're listening to our weekly blockchain gaming roll-up, which we need a better name for this podcast, whatever. We're giving you some updates. Um, we're recording this, or I am at least, on the morning of the 6th of October. We've got Philip Collins, we've got Devin Becker, myself, Nico Verreke, and then we have a very special guest. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can see him. It's Kiefer Zang, who is an economist at Economics Design. He recently wrote a piece titled Deterring Metaverse Speculators and Increasing Liquidity. And by George, this, this piece spoke to me. So uh, we're going to be discussing that. And then if we have time, we're going to segue this into a discussion about fungible tokens, value accrual, usage as a currency, and all of that good stuff. So it's going to be a token-focused episode. Um, yeah, Kiefer, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Nico. Excited to dig into all this. Fantastic. Could you start off? The listeners probably know Devin, Phil, and myself. Could you give like two minutes of background on yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a Web3 Gaming Economics Consultant at Economics Design. And I'm, uh, as you might guess, the uh, kind of gamer who always gets distracted and more interested in the game economy than the game itself. And have been uh, following the crypto space since 2014 or so. So the past five or six years, I've I've been uh, very sure that I want to go deep into the intersection of blockchain and virtual economies. And so I've been doing everything I can to go down that path and made the jump into uh, the space professionally in 2018, uh, initially doing some systems design for a crypto racing game. Then as we got a bit of a, a lull between bull markets, hopped over to doing some incentive design uh, and token model design for company doing uh, crypto casinos and an exchange. And now I've been working at economics design for a bit over a year now, um, getting to work with some of the top web, web three games in the space and uh, figuring out how do you actually design a, a sustainable game economy. And so, yeah, looking forward to uh, sharing some of my learnings from that. Gotcha. Before we dive in, Kiefer, I like to do hot takes and spicy predictions here. And so I'm going to ask you at the end of this episode, what is the Web3 game economy that you like most that you haven't worked on yourself or that is, that economics design is not involved in? So that's something you can keep in the back of your mind and uh, and, and think about uh, while we record this. Mm -hmm. um, Phil, Devin, I might ask you guys the same as well. So um, get ready. All right, good. So your piece, uh, Kiefer, we'd love for you to give us like a short background on it and then, and then we can dive in and then I'd love to get your, you know, high level thoughts um, and then we can have a discussion about it. Yeah, absolutely. And so starting off here, maybe you can take a look at a problem that we see. So looking at metaverse economies in general, and especially looking at scarce assets like land, we have a, um, a lot of speculative, uh, speculative activity going on. Um, and especially talking about the kind of speculative activity that um, sometimes termed as squatting, where you have users who they're in it for the money. They buy up, let's, let's look at uh, land, metaverse land. They'll buy up a piece of metaverse land and they're there because they think that there's gonna be a lot of activity and growth and they're going to be able to make money on it. They're going to be able to sell it down the line for more or rent it out for more, uh, but they're just there for the money. They're not actually building anything. And so this is where you run into a bit of a problem 
if you're the designer or the, the team behind this metaverse, because suddenly you have a bunch of people who are owning the land, but they're not actually building anything on it. You end up with a, an empty world. And obviously that's not going to go that well for your long-term growth. You need, uh, that activity and growth to, uh, to kind of bootstrap things and have uh, an active economy. And so I've been thinking a lot about how do you actually get people to, um, build things on the land and put the, and put these assets in the hands of the people that are going to act in a way that improves the long-term, uh, benefits. So with this, uh, with this proposal, um, go into more details on it later, but it's proposing a particular tax mechanism that is allocating, uh, these types of assets to the users who, uh, are most likely to, to build something and that value it the most. And that tax will mean that speculators are going to sell it, uh, to someone else. And in the long run, you get, um, a, a world where things are built. There's a vibrant, vibrant community. Uh, and there's lots of revenue going to the Dow so they can continue to build cool stuff. Fascinating. So I remember pretty long time ago, um, our friend, and I know you know him as well, Lars Doucet wrote a piece on why land speculators will kill your game's growth. I think the piece is called. And so when you mention land assets, virtual land assets, um, he made a dis distinction because land assets is the standard usage, but more specifically, it's about assets that have like three characteristics. One of them, they're limited in quantity. Um, the other one, they're like needed for production. And then the, the third one is that they accrue value, um, like location-based value. So, you know, if, if you own a piece of land, let's say, you know, I think New York is the best example. Like if you own a piece of land in the middle of New York, you don't have to do anything for that value to increase because around you, because of what happens around you and because of what all of your neighbors are doing, your piece of land actually increases in value. And I think, you know, he used that as an example. And the reason I ask is because I believe that uh, EVE Online as a game doesn't have land, but they have factories or something or something similar where there's these productive assets um, and they um, you need them. And, and so they have the same characteristics. They're just not land. Is that right? It's a military, military controlled mechanism more than it is like a, a owning, like through an NFT kind of thing. It's like you control it militarily uh, more than anything else. Yeah, but I would, I would agree in terms that um, when we're talking about, when I'm saying land in this context, this can apply to things well beyond land. Um, and just anything that has, um, that is desirable, that has some very limited um component to it there's there's some sort of restriction or reason why you can't increase the supply perhaps it could even just be some commitment to to your uh to people that you sold assets to early on um that's so you have some sort of limitation um on that end and there's some reason that users want to to participate and so and want to own that asset and so you have to think about how do you actually allocate those assets so it's going to the people that are going to most efficiently use it Got it. And so what is, what is your proposed solution exactly? How does it work? Um, and so how, how are you, how are you solving this? Yeah. So the first component of this is the idea of a land value tax, and this is not new. This is something that's been around since, uh, the 19th century created by uh, Henry George. 
And this is where you split this, this asset between the base component. So think of that as the land and the improvements can think of this as the house that's built on top of the land. Um, and this is important because we're going to use just that land section, um, for, for the tax, for what we want to value here, because if you start taxing, uh, we'll say the building, if you build a really nice building, you put a lot of effort into that and you start getting taxed on that, that's a reason to not build. You're, you're creating an additional cost for people, um, building. And so we want, we want to incentivize building. We want to remove barriers to, to that thing that improves this entire ecosystem for everybody. And so we want to really drill down to this kind of base level asset, the land itself for the tax. Um, and then for that, you still need a method to figure out how much are you, you actually going to tax here? What is this land or base asset actually worth? Um, and so, uh, when, when figuring this out, we decided to go in a direction where we want to, we want to let the, the market figure this out versus some just touch on alternative things, having a, a central team, uh, say, this is our estimate of what this, what this is worth or some algorithmic, uh, based on market pricing, this is what we think it's worth. Cause that, that involves some level of bureaucracy, uh, and all that, but we really want to dig in. What do people, what are people actually willing to pay for this land? And so this is where, uh, and so the, the general proposal, it's called a bid based land value tax. And so the bid part is saying someone is bidding or willing to pay some amount of money for this individual piece of land. And that's a, a reasonable valuation. And so, uh, since there's, there's the option for the owner to say, I, I can accept this or I can pay tax on this valuation. So that's kind of the key component that whatever the current bid is at this moment is the rate uh, is the, uh, the valuation at which you're going to be taxed. So there's that trade-off of the, the speculator can, can take that money or they can agree, uh, to some ongoing payments, um, at that rate. Uh, but then really important component to, uh, to consider here, um, that I, I believe adds a lot of additional benefits is the tweak that some of that tax revenue is going to go to the person who's creating that bid. Um, so if I'm, if I'm the bidder on this particular piece of land, I'm saying I'm willing to pay, uh, $50 for, for this piece of land. Um, and that, that causes a tax. I am getting a little bit of that tax revenue and in doing so I'm providing a, a service here because I'm helping with price discovery. I'm helping with liquidity. And this is actually a really big shift, um, with NFT markets in general, because if you think about, uh, NFT markets now, there's basically no buy side liquidity. Uh, like if you, if you look at fungible assets, like you can expect, even if the market's crashing, you can always still immediately sell your, uh, your fungible tokens. But if you want to sell your NFTs, there's, you probably can't do it immediately. There's, there's no existing, uh, bids up. Um, and so, uh, this is something that's potentially very difficult, um, or a reason that some people don't enter the NFT market, uh, in terms of bigger, more institutional players, because there's that liquidity risk. You might not be able to immediately sell. And so, uh, kind of that's, that's a key component of this and you're, you're incentivizing liquidity. And so you get this price discovery. And so you're able to 
have a market-based method for determining evaluation and tax assessment. Uh, and then in that way, you assess the tax and you have uh, allocation to the people who are most likely to build on that land. I absolutely love that. Um, and so just to make sure I understand everything, right? So I'm a speculator, right? I was early into Sandbox, you know, I like Sebastian, I've been following him and he suddenly sells a bit of land. I heard that Snoop Dogg, Snoop Dogg was also looking at land, so I buy a piece, right? Let's say I buy one, I, I buy, I pay one ETH for it, one ether. Um, and so what you're proposing is that I have to pay a tax, which is based upon the best price that anyone is willing to buy my piece of land for from me for. So let's say that, you know, because Snoop Dogg actually also bought a piece of land and my piece of land is close to that of Snoop Dogg, you know, the price of my, or the, the bid of my piece of land increases to five ETH, right? I've done a good job. I was a good speculator. I bought it for one. It increases to five. Um, the, you know, if the bid, the best bid moves from one ETH to five ETH, I pay five times the amount of taxes, correct? Yes. And so you, you're immediately getting this increased cost uh, because someone is, is saying that this specific piece of land um, is now worth more. And it's, I would say this kind of uh, incentivized uh, bidding is required because we're talking about a bunch of unique assets that's inherently non-fungible. It's in the name. Um, and so uh, someone still has to say that or uh, these these bidders are helping to say that, okay, this specific piece of land that, that Nico owns is right next to Snoop Dogg. And so uh, because of that, it's going to be, uh, I'm willing to pay now this new five eats price for it. Um, but there could be someone else who said, uh, who's looking at another piece of land that's maybe a block, a few blocks away. It's a little farther down and maybe it gets some increase in value of, because of Snoop Dogg, but they're not Snoop Dogg's neighbor. They're not, not worth quite that much. And so they would have a different bid, but they're still able to uh, essentially express what they think this is worth and then use that to uh, help determine what the tax should be on each of these different um, and unique land plots. And how do you think about the timing of a lot of this with, you know, are you, are you viewing this as a snapshot type of situation where every quarter, you know, semi-annually or annually, you're, you're looking at the highest bid and then the, the landowner owes, owes that on that fixed interval or how, how do you think about that from a timing perspective? Yeah. So thinking about this in terms of there being uh, essentially specified payment periods. So say that first of the month is, is your payday for your taxes. Um, and so based on the previous period, I'll just keep saying a month. So over the, over the course of this month, um, say Nico has the highest bid on this piece of land for the first week. And then Devin comes in, uh, in the second week outbids Nico at a higher price. And so, uh, that's, uh, over the court, whole, whole time I, I start as the owner started accruing this, this tax payment that goes up in the second week, but just over time, whatever the, the highest bid is, I'll accrue it over that rate. And so I'm building up this, this kind of debt that I owe uh, at the end of the month. And it's my obligation um, to put some money into a smart contract to cover that, uh, before, that before that due date. Um, and so if there's 
if there's a situation where it's a cash flowing NFT, you could direct some of that revenue directly into this contract to make this a little bit easier. Um, but basically got to make that payment. Or if you don't, uh, this would cause, uh, you can, you can leverage the fact that there is liquidity there and that you can force a sale in that case. So if you're not, if you're not paying your taxes, then you're going to get immediately, uh, get that, uh, immediately sold to the highest bidder. Um, and then a portion of that revenue goes back to, uh, paying Nico and Devin for, uh, the, their bids they had over the last month. The cool thing here is that it's all programmatically possible, right? It can all be done and implemented in code on the blockchain where it's transparent and fair. And, you know, when you buy it, you know what's going to happen and there's no dispute, right? Because it's all, it's all there. Um, really interesting. Um, have you considered, because in this case, Kiefer, what you're proposing is something where, you know, you have to pay and so you have to be reactive. Is there a way where you can force like force or allow people to stake beforehand where, you know, you have to put a stake of, you know, X percent. So you, you essentially give, give more time to react because you, if you say it's every month, then, and, and, you know, people are not non-reactive. It might cause issues and like have these things liquidated unfairly because also don't forget that, you know, these things might be in development. And so when people is actually like working on something and building something and then suddenly like you force them to sell, um, I guess like we need to be careful with how we how we implement these things. Have you thought about potentially like having people stake things and then you know from that stake the tax get gets taken? So you 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 have to stake when you buy it like for a year's worth of taxes, something like that. Yeah, I'd say you could do that, but probably the most flexible choice would be uh, giving the owners the the flexibility to do whatever kind of pre prepayment they want if they're they're very risk averse or. Uh, they don't plan to check on this very often. Just they can put however much they want in the smart contracts to where they feel very comfortable about that's going to cover their ongoing uh, tax obligations for, for a while. Um, or, but the downside to that is that's not very capital efficient in terms of you have money that doesn't really need to be there. It's not, not doing anything and it's kind of excess or over, overpayment. Um, and so you can. I'd say kind of give them the choice of if they want, they can cut it down to the wire, leave that money uh, off earn yield somewhere up until the day that it's due. And so I think just kind of leaving it up to them of how risk averse they are and how, how efficient they want to be with their capital allocation. Mm. There's some interesting stuff to approach then too. And when, if people get essentially foreclosed on, uh, you know, the forced transfer, uh, what happens to the stuff on the land, like the, the stuff that are developing, right? Like, you have the issue of like, does it just go back in their pocket? Or is there a situation where, at least, let's say it goes back in their pocket, but the person that, you know, was able to purchase the land through the forced sale suddenly comes back to that person that they bought it from and goes, well, I know that tax was too much for you, but would you want to rent out those things to me that you were developing and I'll finish developing them and then I'll make the profit on it. And like, there's some interesting, I think, business aspects that happen through these mechanisms uh, by separating the land value from the, the, the stuff developed on it. And the ability for digital stuff to just go in your pocket as opposed to like literally like having to come in with a bulldozer and demolish the previous owner's stuff and, and all that sort of thing. So it, it allows for a lot more dynamic stuff, I think, in general than we can do in the physical world. So that that in itself could be pretty interesting. Yeah, I I really like that aspect. Um, and this is kind of a situation I think is going to happen more often where we see kind of theoretical concepts from economics 
end up working way better in the virtual world than they do in the real world. Because yeah, you can, you can literally pull apart the building and the land, make those separate NFTs. And I, part, uh, something I didn't mention uh, as part of this is that uh, the bids that you make are separate for the land and the improvements itself. And that's how you kind of have that, the valuation specifically for the land. But that also means that you can have someone buy just the, the house off you or just the land off of you. Um, and so you have that, that really important uh, kind of a separation there. Um, and yeah, and that has, has very interesting implications on, yeah, you could just, you could just uh, sell that house to that person or sell that house to a completely different user. Is there any is there any concern that this could almost go full circle where just like you don't want speculators sitting on land because then the land sits empty and nothing is there where there's a constantly, you know, there's a basically a revolving door of lands where somebody builds something on it, that land ends up getting taken out of their hands and the experience goes with them and then you're back to a blank piece of land that needs to be built on again. Um, how can you kind of manage that <laughs> that revolving door? Yeah, that's... That's, that's an interesting one. Um, so I, I think in that case, then the current owner of the land, it would then be up to them to continue to do something useful with that land, right? If they just sold their, the house on it to someone, they still have, they still have their tax obligations. There's still mm -hmm. some bidder on forcing taxes on them. And they're not like, well, better, better build something else. Yeah. I imagine there'll be a separation between landowners and developers. Um, so they'll be like, it'll be, it'll be kind of similar to real life in some ways, right? Where you'll have landowners who are focused on extracting value from the land. Then you'll have people that are builders, like developers that are focused on how to maximize the utility of the land through building different things on it. You know, whether, you know, treating it like shopping mall people, you know, like the build shopping malls, whatever. Um, these kind of people that design and build these things, maybe in their warehouse, right? They've got this warehouse of these NFTs of, or other pre-configured things that are like already built develop things that could be plopped on that blank slate. And then so the landowners are then seeking these developers to develop on their land so then they can extract value to then pay the tax plus, you know, gains of profit. And then you've got the people that are like architects that are more of like the actual like people that work for the developers to actually develop the buildings. And like you could you could have this whole like chain of of uh, value and people working in this whole process, you know, sort of mirroring real life to some extent, but with like a little more clean uh, separation because of the digital nature, as, as Kiefer was saying, by being able to cleanly separate these things, we can have people that specialize uh, in those things, you know, from their home and not have to be like, oh, geographically located local people the way you have kind of in real life where, you know, developers and the people kind of have to work together in person and therefore like our, like the pool of talent is limited in different ways. And you could have superstar architects or developers or builders who are like known for doing this stuff, but they can also copy and paste. Like they don't have to physically hire a new construction crew every time to rebuild the same franchise McDonald's. They can copy and paste that digital content and tweak it slightly for the land or the location. And so there's like a lot of interesting, like in between sort of middlemen that I think become very interesting in this idea of, uh, okay, I need to extract value from my land. It's like, you know, if I, I'm squatting on a website, right? And I'm like, okay, well, if, you know, I'm getting taxed on this website domain. So I might as well hire like a, a website designer to make a nice website. So I can make some money off the site, off ads or whatever, while I'm sitting here squatting on it, like, and so on and so forth, which is, I mean, that's, that's what Kiefer is saying is that like the, the idea is that to incentivize that value chain, right? Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, 
that's what I think is really interesting direction that metaverses are going to go in terms of having ways that participants really can play and earn. It's not so much in terms of just kind of a base participation in a gameplay, but providing a specific sort of service inside of a value chain where there's some demand at, at the top of the chain um, for some asset, but from a user that doesn't necessarily want to go through every single step of the process. And so there's, there's value to be had by providing some sort of intermediary service there. Kind of like clothes were in, in, uh, in Second Life, right? Where you had these, these clothing providers that were designing and making avatar clothes and things like that. But then all of a sudden we start to see it for experiences or buildings because we've got uh, this, this different type of land. I mean, we had land and stuff in Second Life and there was like some sense of developers and stuff like that. But I don't think it gotten quite as like modularized as we might see with like the more futuristic sort of metaverses, uh, kind of building off that idea of like, because there was a lot of small businesses in Second Life just doing the same kind of thing, but like more towards avatar clothing and items and things like that. Feels like we're we're creating real life, but just more efficient. It's like, hey, George doesn't doesn't didn't work out in the real world, so um, let's let's just do it in the metaverse, right? We'll find so, some new ways this won't work out. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's I guess my my next point. So first of all, I think this makes a ton of sense, right? I um I heard or read this statistic, and um, please do not fact check me on this, but but I, I think it, there's there's it's directionally correct that of all of the value that was created within um, Silicon Valley a ridiculously large percentage, as in like, you know, 30 or even 50% was actually accrued or captured by landowners in that area. So, you know, all of the startups there, you know, Apple and, and all of the others, all of the wages for all of the engineers there, like a ridiculously large chunk was just captured by people who were lucky early. And well, look at the way McDonald's works. Like the way McDonald's worked, switched to a profit model of like l renting out the land essentially or leasing out the land for the franchisees instead of just being about franchise profits. Like they realized the value was in the land there pretty early on. Like if you watch the movie The Founder, that was like a great way of like seeing that that process develop towards mm -hmm. the end um, because they realized, hey, that's where the value's at. And I don't think a lot of other businesses do that the same way. So it's kind of interesting to see like maybe people will look at like how McDonald's developed as as kind of a a little bit of a model towards the, mm -hmm. the future in metaverse stuff. Yes, but I, I, I'm not sure if that's desirable. And so I guess, you know, what Kiefer proposes is a solution for that, right? Where you actually reward the people that are doing shit instead of people that, you know, just squat on shit. Um, but I guess why I think there, there's a risk of this not working out. And I think the biggest risk is something I've seen in esports, ironically. So as you might know, I'm currently in the process of following League of Legends World Championship. Extremely exciting. Um, the first EU team already got kicked out, lol. Um, so we have three more left. Let's see. Anyway, um, very interesting. So in the EU League of Legends Championship, it's called the LEC, um, there used to be a model where you had, I think, 10 teams. And at the end of every year, the worst two teams had to go into like a elimination type um, system with the two best teams of the second league. And so, which meant that for an organization, any esports organization, you had a chance each year of losing your spot within the first league. And so the difference in viewership of the first and the second league, league were huge. And so that essentially meant that organizations had, or were like not incentivized at all to invest in their teams 
in their organizations, in their setup, uh, because they could, like every year, they had a chance of losing their spots and seeing their investments goes to go to waste almost. And so uh, a few years ago, the, the whole system changed to a franchise model where there were 10 slots that were sold to the highest bidder or to the organizations that were already there. And this completely changed the league. And so the, the capitalist in me was like, yo, that's not fair, right? We want the best teams. But apparently what ended up happening was that these teams, when they were sure that they were going to have a spot, they had a way easier time finding sponsors, getting partners and building out the infrastructure around their organization. And so the whole league actually leveled up just because the, because of the incentives and the certainty that, you know, having these franchise slots provided. And so I guess why I bring this up is in the proposal that you bring, Kiefer, it seems like, you know, it makes so much sense, but from a landowner and land developer perspective, or maybe landowner primarily, um, if I had the choice between, you know, owning and building out a piece of land that I know will be always mine and I don't have any risk of losing it or, you know, the cost getting too high, um, versus having a piece of land that own, that I can own, but then, you know, there, there's, if I don't develop it optimally, I might lose it. Um, I might always go for the first. And so my question, my concern would be then, um, will this ever actually happen? Will game slash metaverse designers and builders, so the ones that build the foundation that actually design the land, ever be incentivized to actually implement this? What do you think? I would say yes. And I would say it would often be done uh, in a reactionary way. Like this is uh, this is a somewhat complex uh, policy. And, and, I've, and generally I recommend with, uh, with a co virtual economy design to, to gradually iterate. So this would be something that might be done in reaction to seeing some of the, the risks that we, that we start, uh, excuse me, started out talking with here. Um, around they're starting to see speculators buying up, not building anything, and this being more of a corrective measure um, on on that specific component. And it also just to kind of uh, touch on um, on on where we were just at here, uh, I think it's important to consider that when designing an economy, look at who you want to be rewarding, and specifically those who are actually creating value. Um, there's a lot of, uh, kind of skeuomorphism in, in looking at how, uh, value is, uh, distributed in, in kind of the real economy, especially around land creation and all that. And it doesn't have to be the same in virtual worlds, just as you don't have to, um, match, uh, the physics of the physical world. You don't have to match the economics of, of the physical world. Um, you can really get creative in determining who should be rewarded and what they should be rewarded for. Um, and so I, I highly recommend to everyone designing, like think from first principles here, where, who is, who is adding value and who should be incentivized to add value. Yeah. The other thing I brought up to you personally that I think is interesting with this is the idea that this is entirely focused on commercial endeavors, right? It's focused mm -hmm. on land being a value extraction system. Uh, or, or, you know, like maximizing some kind of return on your land, right? Because we're, we're looking at squatters primarily. Uh, we're looking at trying to stop people from treating land entirely as a profit system. But then that's like focused entirely on commercial buildings and this idea in real life that we have zoning and other things like that. So I think this kind of pro proposition makes sense if you say like, here's the commercial zone. Like this area is for commercial property. Therefore, we're implementing this tax because everyone on it is looking 
to extract value. This isn't like residential apartments or like say parks. Like, you know, the idea that we want parks and other things in the land, stuff that's not just commercialized landscape. So then we start to have to get into zoning a little bit and like, okay, well then these, these different zones. And then we start to involve the DAOs as local governance to say like, okay, we need city planners to like plan out where these parks go and these and develop the land off these parcels as well. These parcels are then government property, essentially that is developed by the DAO as opposed to commercialized land. And I think you end up repeating some of the stuff from real life, but trying to find ways to make the incentives cleaner and the design's a little nicer. But I think like you start to look at, interestingly, the stuff in real life, why it exists and whether or not it's relevant becomes really interesting. But you also have the idea that like, we don't have to have scarce land, for example, right? Like, Let's say we're mm -hmm. talking about apartments and there's the idea of instanced apartments where location doesn't necessarily matter. People could just teleport to your apartment. It doesn't have to have a physical location. So we can start to kind of like take bits and pieces, I think, from real life ideas and implement them in different ways that make sense for different kinds of incentives, different kinds of players. And obviously that's like the whole fun of, of Web3, right? Is like this game design meets economic design to like different kinds of participants because you didn't have the financial kind of participants the same way in games before. And now that we do, we have to like really like adjust things differently because we don't want the people with money screwing up like the fun for everyone else, just like, you know, pay to win started to do when we had the ability for like money to influence the game more. So it's, it's very interesting problem solving wise. I wonder if we will start to see actual governance develop out of it, like through the DAOs or whatever, where we have to start considering local and global governments uh, essentially for land development. Yeah, definitely a, a lot of interesting points there uh, I want to touch on. Uh, first of all, being like with instanced land, honestly, that's something I recommend to teams before even uh, like the bid-based land value tax of just try to, if, if you can, if it's uh, applicable to your to your vision, avoid kind of this issue entirely of uh, if you if your land is instanced, you, you don't have that kind of locational limitation on growth where you can't scale land in the city because it's it's in the city um but yeah then then past that um yeah kind of the zoning i think is a, a really interesting aspect to, to go towards there and figuring out what portion of this do you want to be um uh, kind of commercial or financial focus versus more residential or taking out some some other non-financial utility um there is also kind of another lever here uh in in the policy is that you can the actual tax rate that you apply to evaluation, that's kind of another thing you can play around with in terms of if, if you're able to determine uh, which bucket they would fall into in terms of commercial or residential or just not building anything, then you could potentially mess around with the tax rates there. Um, but yeah, does it doesn't necessarily mean that that it would always fit. And I think zoning is a good direction. And that that ties into to the governance aspect. Um, and uh, we're going to see a lot of growth in uh, in complexity in DAOs of figuring out as, as we get closer and closer to uh, or we get more complex economies, uh, they, they kind of go through the same progression that, that physical governments did of needing to figure out, OK, we have all these problems. We need to we need to figure out how to implement them. And that also ties to needing to fund this this governance process potentially. Um, and something, uh, tying it back to the bid-based land value tax, something that I think is really important there is that this is enabling a tax on ownership. Uh, 
right now the the only taxation we system we have for for DAOs in in the metaverse context is they get revenue from sales. So that's basically people like leaving their ecosystem. Uh, when the long term goal and what you really want to incentivize uh, to have alignment is people staying and building. But if someone stays and builds, you're not actually the DAO's not actually getting revenue from that in in most of the current models here. Um, or if they do try some direct capture, it might be circumvented by uh, just kind of external rent agreements or something. Um, and so this kind of model, you're able to uh, capture ongoing taxes. Like if we, we look at uh, most governments now, they, they don't monetize solely through sales tax. Like they use, I guess, less efficient property taxes, but the same concept of you have some ongoing revenue from ownership. Um, and so it means that the DAO is actually aligned with creating policies that get people to, to hold and build um, versus having a, a kind of competing incentive of they want, they want to build, but they also need money from people leaving and selling. That's where you're going to have homeowners associations be, being micro DAOs, <laughs> right? That's yeah, where we're going to mow your vertical grass. Yeah. Um, until now, whenever we spoke about metaverses and land, I had worlds like Sandbox and Decentraland in my head. I'd like, um, you know, Phil's always very measured in his answers. I'd like to have your take, Phil, on what type of land-based metaverses you see succeed over the long run, right? You have the, the you know, the sandbox and decentralized ones, but then you also have something Axie is doing where it's more game-based. Game I always struggle with imagining people wanting to spend time in a metaverse that's owned by brands like freaking Nike. Like, mm -hmm. I... I struggle. Like, I'm not going to say what, what I think it will happen, but I, I'd love to have your take on this. Yeah, I mean, I think when I think of metaverses in general and something that I see that's a little bit problematic in a lot of the pitches we see with metaverses is there's nothing really to do in a lot of them. And they're they're very much so focused on this this kind of overarching social experience, which a little with a little bit of gamification layered on top in terms of like exploring the world. But it often feels a little bit hollow. And I think, I think so to your point on the game side, that's exactly where I tend to tend to fall. I think there has to be a core experience. And I know that's incredibly broad, whether that's a game, whether that's some other kind of entertainment mechanism, there has to be a core experience that pulls people in. And that will not only bring people in the door and retain them, but it will also, you know, ascribe value to, to different regions of that world based on what you're close to. Um, there, there's a lot of different directions we could say that take that, but yeah, I think the core experience is a, a necessity when, when thinking about these, these kind of metaverse structures. That's what makes Haba Hotel an interesting example, right? Because it was like, all these, as you pointed out, are mostly glorified chat rooms, right? Haba Hotel like took that in the social direction of like signaling, not through like clothing, but through furniture where like furniture and like displaying your personal apartment property and stuff like that became like a, a huge part of the experience. And that was where the gamification was. It was like, you know, dress up your apartment. Uh, and so there's been some interesting examples in the past where people have kind of taken some different approaches um, with different kinds of games around that. But they often, as you said, end up social in, in the dynamics because that's kind of what people, like people are the content generally, right? Like you could build all the content in the world, but it bur gets burnt out and then other people still become the content. Yeah, I think it depends on the type of uh, kind of player persona you're targeting here, because we there is a really large persona that's just the socializers, where they might not need uh, 
too deep of an actual like uh gameplay loop of if you give them a good uh location or a good good way to interact with other people and and fill their scratch their socializing itch um then that can be a viable experience itself and i i think that's kind of what a lot of these like non-game metaverses are are targeting there yeah i, th I think eventually we're going to start to see more and more of these pop up and eventually we're going to have dozens of options to choose from on the social side. And that's where I think we almost come full circle back to what else can I do there? And everyone's going to kind of one up each other in terms of what I'm able to do on a given platform. And I think I've, I've talked to a few different social oriented, you know, quote unquote metaverse platforms. And that's, that's eventually their strategy where they're going to build out what are effectively mini games as, as an engagement mechanism that, kind of is, is something that is maybe novel compared to their peers, but we're going to continuously see these groups one up each other. And I think that the, the core experiences will continue to be that, that one up mechanism. It's um, to me, the current in metaverse industry is based on two things. One speculation and two big brands being able to say that they're actually doing something in a metaverse. These are basically like where all the money's coming from. Um, and but, but to, to your guys' point, I think, you know, I, I know myself, I'm very biased by you know, what kind of experiences I would like. Um, but I've recently interviewed um, Anton Bernstein on the Metacast. He's a CEO and co-founder of Pocket Worlds. And so they have a, a game called High Rise, which is probably the biggest web free enabled metaverse out there that no one talks about. Why? Because their main audience is teenage girls that each have a room and like they have like little games in there and they can like essentially express their identity in a very flexible way um they have like hundreds of millions in transactions uh, it's pretty crazy but um yeah there's actually people enjoying their time there spending time there um and so we that that's i guess then you know the other way the metaverse can go reminds me of the uh the sort of battles we've seen over the years between different chat platforms like instant messaging platforms whether it would be like aol instant messenger versus msn you know, all these ones that didn't survive, but they were all trying to like build different experiences. And I found like they often had like geographic stuff to them. Like, so like the UK would be big at MSN mm -hmm. and maybe like South America would be big at MSN, but then America is using AOL Instant Messenger. And then you just have these like sort of cyclic things. And then you see even other things that weren't necessarily like uh, trying to go towards games, going towards games like uh, Twitch channels where like the people start building these sort of like mini games in there uh, that people, and get these little virtual currencies towards these Twitch channels because you're trying to like build loyalty. It's almost like these pseudo loyalty programs that turn into games, right? Where you're trying to keep people committed to your platform uh, to what Phil was saying, where like you, people are trying to like find ways to keep people there. And so they're like adding more and more stuff as like a way to retain users because like acquiring users, you know, ends up in this initial battle of who can build the fastest market, the quickest, whatever. But then retaining those users so they don't go over to another platform starts to become tricky. And like even Discord, right? Like it's starting to try and build more and more things to do within Discord to keep people engaged in that platform. And then that's got its own, you know, obviously each server is competing for each other. And obviously there's only so much space to go around. And then you might end up with like what actually a metaverse is supposed to be, which is like a bridge between all these, right? Where it's like all these combined. It's not just like Habo Hotel and High Rise as separate things. It's like them also existing within one giant sort of universe. And that's kind of the metaverse itself, as opposed to these other things that we're calling metaverses are actually really virtual worlds. Like mm -hmm. we just slapped a brand new name on them, called them something different, but brands were doing the exact same thing in 2006, 2007 with Second Life. We just called it a virtual world rather than a metaverse then. 
but they did the exact same thing. So we're going through that kind of cycle. But the metaverse idea is more like Trillion was the chat messenger programs or Beeper is now, where it's like trying to combine all these into, into one sort of unified world. And that's where like standards come in and stuff like that. And it's, it's very tricky, but it'll, it'll be really interesting to see if, if people actually figure out the engagement aspect in a way that isn't just continuing to repeat the same sort of mini game mentality that we've had in the past. Yeah. On, on the brand side, it's interesting too, because I feel like a lot of, a lot of these brand engagement strategies are focused on platforms that are pretty nascent still. So even Sandbox, you know, we talk about it all the time, but it's still a really young platform and we see all these brands converging on it. In the past, we've seen brands converge on platforms like Roblox with, a, with an existing captive audience. And now getting into the metaverse means something different. And so brands are just trying to get in on the ground floor of all these different platforms. And in a lot of ways, I think it could be a deterrent for, for new players being onboarded. And so I think there's some platform risk there um, with, with platforms over-indexing towards brands as a, as, as a base level experience versus coming into and, and, and layering themselves on top of, of an existing thriving platform with, the, with you know, tens, hundreds of millions of users. Mm -hmm. what, I, what I really like about this discussion and, and your proposal, Kiefer, is the fact that we're thinking about assets non-skeuomorphically, right? Um, it feels to me like both NFTs and virtual land, more specifically, has been used like very skeuomorphically, as in we've just taken this concept of that we know, which is, you know, there's there's land and you can own it and you can, you know, do whatever they want with it. And if you're not using it, it's fine. Um, and we've copied that into, you know, the, our virtual replication of, of, of the world almost. And so what I really like about this, and this is, I think, this is something that I'm actively looking for in the companies that I, that I want to work with is, you know, thinking differently around these technologies and start using the fact that we can now program ownership to solve some of the problems that we see in the real world, right? And so, you know, your proposal is, you know, it's, you just, you don't just own a piece of land. It is, you're essentially, essentially making a commitment. Right, you you own it, and but that with that you commit to, you know, paying a tax, which means that you commit yourself to actually trying to produce value with it, because otherwise you're going to lose money. Um, and so, you know, I really like this thinking. I really like you know programming it into the asset itself, where you know if you own it, this this is part of it, and you can't get out of that. Um, and I hope more teams, more people start thinking about you know programmable ownership and and do some more interesting things with it. Yeah, I think this is a, a really important shift that we need to get kind of to this next stage of more uh, complex um, uh, and well well developed projects. Because right now, a lot of a lot of the focus is just around uh, speculation and how how do you get number to go up. Uh, and so you you need to have uh, to to set the focus of, of the the initial audience that you're pulling in to be the ones that are making the commitment to. Uh, to that activity, to that building, to that growth. And in the end, it's, it's to get those users, they're responding to incentives. If the incentives you, you give are, we'll give you a, a great opportunity to, to make money, you're going to get in the users who are there to make money. If you give them a good opportunity to be successful through building and not just uh, easy buy and sell later, then you're going to actually incentivize and bring in the people who will build and, and create that, that interesting experience. 
That's why mm-hmm. I think it's valuable that Sandbox and Decentraland both have run a lot of game jam kind of things where they're really trying to build up the, com- the creator base. And we don't always see that right away, right? Because like in Sandbox, we're mostly seeing as, as Nico's mentioning, branded lands come in, right? Branded experiences, things like that. So we're not seeing a lot of like the, the general user experiences that could happen from individual creators and things like that. Um, and it's, it's going to be interesting to see that shift when, say, Sandbox opens up more uh, and we start seeing people building like the experiences that they're supposedly building through these game jams. You do have that a bit in Decentraland where people are building like their own kind of game worlds and things like that because it's a bit more open than sandboxes. But you still have the issues of land ownership and those sorts of things. But I think it will be interesting to see like these creative things. We almost need like also maybe even like a a, a shadow copy of a, a sandbox where it's just like a world for builders to build in that uh, for assets that can then come over to the regular world so that like people can have it as like a, a simulation um, so that they're not trying to build within sandbox where they don't have land. Like, cause some of these things try and do that sort of thing where you have to build on land, right? Like that you own. And so they have the things where you can kind of build in a virtual experience. That's just like a, a virtual imaginary plot, but it's not really multiplayer. Like you can't really test it the same way to get, see what people's experience is like. And so this idea that like, almost like Minecraft, right? Where you're building within world and there's other people that could be part of that world, but it's like its own server. And I, I, I feel like we're again going to go towards this idea of like more than one server for all these kinds of worlds, because I think that's the inevitable pressure is there to trend towards that. And the way that we had land value tax and stuff like that in the past with a lot of these things was renting the server. That was the cost. That was the thing that you had to pay continuously was renting that server to run that. And that was more worldwide rather than land specific. But I think we do continue to trend towards this direction of people needing to like build in these spaces for builders that just want to build and have these open worlds as opposed to ones that are just commercialized theme parks like the sandbox kind of is right now. Mm-hmm. Good. Which brings me back to my initial idea of doing a hot take and, and good metaverse or good economy design uh, question or whatever I, I, uh, we're framing this. So Kiefer, um, what is to you the, best design economy that you didn't help out with yourself. <laughs> yeah. And so there's, there's a lot of thing, a lot of ones that have uh, kind of certain things that, that are uh, interesting to, to point out, but maybe one that I like just in general and the concept they're going for is a uh, block Lords. So they're going for uh, kind of a, a medieval, um, uh, medieval game where we're cru- the crucial economic component is that you have split roles so you have different types of activities that you can do in the game you have the base level farmers on like a or having basically a, a resource uh, collection type of type of gameplay loop and then having the the knights or raiders who have who are attacking or defending and then higher levels of uh more uh, political focus activity of uh, being the lord of a certain area or the king of a nation. And so you have a variety of, of different type of gameplay loops that have their own economic components um, that are, are inter- interdependent on each other. So you're kind of creating the complexity that allows for a complex economy. And then each of these loops are kind of working together in a synchronous way. Um, and so I think that's going to be a really interesting economy to watch. Asymmetric gameplay. Love it. How about you, uh, Devin? I still uh, find Splinterlands still one of my favorite ones, mostly because like 
They've done a lot of stuff around kind of dynamically trying to balance the game's economy, uh, whether that be the soft pegging system that they used or some of the other stuff where they're trying to create a sort of stable coin in their future stuff around their um, the, the soccer game, for example. They've done just a lot of really interesting dynamics around uh, incentives as well, uh, the way that they're trying to incentivize things so that like bots, for example, aren't a negative in the the economy or like the the user's participation in the economy is also partly balanced towards their rewards alongside skill. And it they've kind of been iterating a lot. And sometimes I think their iterations maybe don't always go in the right direction, but they're continuing to do that. And I find that really interesting to watch because they're paying attention, whether they get it right or wrong to a lot of key things around incentive design, trying to balance like supply and demand dynamically. Uh, and just thinking about like, hey, if we can't fight bots, how do we incorporate them? Or how do we deal with the the, the nature of the game uh, without changing the game itself and build around that, build the economy around that over time? And have done so pretty successfully, I think, compared to a lot of other games that have crashed and burned. And and it's not a speculative economy in general. And I think that's been a, like a good, healthy thing to see is like, obviously, this isn't like, hey, copy and paste this economy to every game. But like for what they're building, for what they've been doing, it's been really interesting over time. And they've had some pretty dramatic shifts, like over from their utility token towards more of their governance token and stuff like that. I'm not sure I always agree with all of them, but I, I love watching and seeing what works and what doesn't because they're continually trying to iterate and adapt to a very dynamic environment and then build new games now that they, they've announced quite a few of those. Why is it that so Splinterlands has been around for ages in terms of uh, yeah. blockchain gaming worlds? Why is it that there's little hype around it? Although they've done things right in some ways, the fact that they're you know they still have I think uh, in the top five at least most players um, when it comes to blockchain games out there. Um, wh why is there so little hype and, and people talking about it? Two easy answers. One, it's not a huge earning thing like Axie was, right? Axie Axie got all the attention not because it was a great game. Not because everyone loved playing it, but because it was like, hey, we can earn our Filipino minimum wage over here. Like that was what, that, that's it, right? Like, so because the earnings are more realistic and more balanced than split lines, you don't hear about it, right? There's articles you could find on Peaked or whatever, like people talk about how they earn and how they make slow profit and whatever and reinvest that in the game. But that's like more reinvesting in the game. It's like more growing uh, your account. And the second reason is this trading card game. As much as I love trading card games and they're like my favorite genre, they're also a niche genre. It's not something that's going to appeal to everyone. And especially when you make it a transactional sort of auto battled nature, it's really not going to appeal to everyone, right? Like some people want that back and forth and they could play Gods Unchained or Skyweaver or one of the many other back and forth ones. It's, it's a very kind of niche audience. That being said, uh, Splinterfest is happening right now, I think. So it'd be interesting to see the attendance of that and the engagement with that compared to say like AxiCon, just to kind of gauge really what realistic community interest is like, because I, I don't have huge amount of visibility into that either. I mean, I guess in theory, I could drive to Vegas and see because I'm not too far. So could you, Kiefer, I guess. But uh, it, it's it's one of those things where it's like, it doesn't have to be a huge celebrity game to be successful. And I think we kind of, we tend to mistake that, right? Especially in the VC world, you're looking for the 10Xs, right? Uh, there, there's another definition of success that isn't about being a 10X. That's like paying the wages of an entire uh, nation. So <laughs> I would say that's why, really. Uh, I bring it up a lot, so I don't know. I'm, I'm doing my part. <laughs> Good, Phil. What's your answer to the question? Yeah, I think I think an interesting one, just from like a pure monetization standpoint, for me has been uh, World Spark Studios. Um, I, I actually don't know what's public about their tokenomics, so I'll keep it pretty yeah. high level. But I it's, think they're doing a really interesting. What's that? Yeah, 
uh, it's the it's live. Their white paper is live on it. We we actually awesome. worked with them. Yeah, so I mean, high level, they're doing they're doing an interesting kind of hybrid model across uh, a fungible token and a, and a hard currency. So what you traditionally think of as a as a normal game currency. Um, and I think that's a it's a really interesting way to to drive engagement where the ability to earn and to expand your collectibles is really heavily driven by playing the game. Um, so I think it, it Nix is a, a component of speculation that we've seen in a lot of games. And I just think it's a, it's a cool way of tying in more traditional gaming business models with, you know, kind of a fungible token or, or blockchain oriented approach. Did you guys uh, invest in them? No, we, uh, we aren't doing content right now. We're we're purely on the infrastructure and tech side, so we we are not we are not investors. No conflict yeah, of interest here, Nico. Kiefer said he was involved, though. So yeah, yeah, we uh, we actually designed designed their economy or worked very closely with them on that. Awesome. Um, and yeah, so that that I think is a, a really interesting one, uh, especially on just method of it distributing assets as well, having essentially very tight control over inflation with, uh, uh, and also. Kind of the concept of uh, separating out uh, the act, the activity and the financial and any sort of financial reward through like randomization and delays to avoid undermining uh, kind of intrinsic motivation to, to play the game. Yep, I I did not know Kiefer worked on that for the record. So there you go. Fun fun um, anecdote about WorldSpark is that I met the team or some people on the team in, at GDC like six months mm -hmm. ago and we were talking and one of the guys introduced himself and was like hey my name is mundo and i'm like oh mundo that's yeah. that was one of my favorite champions in league of legends and he's like yeah that was named after me well he didn't say it <laughs> someone else said it and i was like yep. holy crap uh big fan so um that was that was that was cool anyway this was a great conversation i i had one like random thing that i wanted to mention yesterday i had a kind of meeting with some colleagues in a vr game called walk about mini golf and from now on i want to do as many meetings as i can in that game because it's perfect right you're just standing there you can see each other you play a little bit of mini golf and you're you're you having just a like chat. in real life where you have meetings over golf exactly it's amazing it's awesome so um if if you want to have a meeting with me and you want to increase your chance of me you know being there like if, if we book a meeting i'm there right but i'm i'm, I'm trying to be you know uh what is it? Conservative with my time. I'm, I'm so proud of you, Nico. You're finally moving into multiverse, uh, metaverse meetings. So Dude, uh, I'm, I'm happy. We just got to get I'm Phil in now. That. As wait, soon as we're having we this do... podcast in there. Yeah, I was going to say, why don't we just have these conversations in there? We'll, we'll have I, the next episode of the podcast while playing mini golf. I'm down for that. Honestly, like I've I've tried figuring out, like how do we do this? That's still something I'm trying to figure out, right? For the audience, because we do you videos. You can Chromecast well. uh, like to your computer or whatever, maybe record it that way. But we can always get into that discussion later. But I, yes. I, I'm I'm happy to hear that from you. Okay, so if if we ever find like a very good recording solution in VR, like we should be the first ones doing this, right? As the future of gaming, right? So uh, I'm down to to try that out. So uh, if anyone has a has a good suggestion, I think you know the mini golf game's not yet there, but um, soon, I'm sure. All right, cool. This was uh, an amazing conversation, and as expected, we just like went on on the first topic that we we chose because it was such an interesting one um yeah there's more to talk about so um i guess that's then for the next episode Kiefer, you were the star of the show so uh thank you very much for joining thanks so much for having me that was fun it was good Devin, phil thank you guys as well um listener thank you most of all if you made it till here hope you learned something hope you enjoyed 
If you did, let us know. Give us a, a like, a subscribe, five stars, all that good stuff. And if you're not yet hanging out in the Discord, join us at futureofgaming.wtf. We'd love to, uh, yeah, to talk and, and, and jam about these things. Um, and then finally, we're starting a new segment, which is going to be Fogged Out Founders, where people that are actually building stuff, because most of us are not, we're like, you know, consulting or investing, uh, but there's actual builders in here, and they're going to share knowledge, insights, experiences, which I think are going to be fantastic. So if you're a founder, if you're in the DAO, reach out, Jesse's organizing all that, um, I'm going to set up a separate channel. Um, if you're not yet in the DAO and you want to share your stories, you have interesting things to tell, let us know and uh, we'll get you in there. All right, that was it. Had a blast. Thank you guys. And we look forward to speaking to you next week. Ciao.